Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. India's anguish, crematoriums overflow, as the government admits responsibility is ours. Quote, double dip, the EU back in recession in Q1 as Germany's economy stalls. And amazon, the tech titan delivers a 200% plus profit rise. It's Friday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome, as always, to our first movers around the globe. It's great to have you with us. We are wrapping up a week filled with promising news on recoveries and reopenings on the one hand, but with the spectre of India's worsening humanitarian crisis on the other. And it was another heartbreaking day there. Almost 400,000 new COVID cases reported. We will take you to India for the latest as more critical aid supplies arrive. We'll also hear from the Oyo Hotel CEO as the business community too battles to offer their support. For now, though, it's the final trading day of April. U.S. futures are softer. The S&P 500 easing back from record highs hit on Thursday. That despite gains, as I mentioned, from tech titan Amazon. All the details on their monster earnings report coming up. Europe, in the meanwhile, bucking that trend helped, I think, by strong results from the likes of Barclays, BNP Paribas in the financial sector and offsetting news that the eurozone entered a double dip recession in the first quarter. But remember, of course, that data is always back looking. More recent indications point to things like Germany improving. And we know the French economy could see COVID restrictions ease, which will help next week. Meanwhile, in Asia, tech troubles trump all. The global semiconductor shortage limiting Chinese factory activity. While in Hong Kong, Chinese tech stops fell after Beijing ordered 13 major firms to dial back on risk, unbundle services and address, quote, unfair competition in their fintech units. There is lots to discuss this hour, as always. But once again, we begin in India with new coronavirus cases again breaking records over the past 24 hours. A spokesman for Prime Minister Modi's party admitted there had been failings in the government's response. We are the government in India. So, of course, responsibility is first and foremost ours, good or bad, whatever it is. I mean, it is our responsibility and we're trying our very little best. But this did come as a surprise. Today, a lot of people are saying that you should have done that. We knew in February, but that time, scientists, doctors, they were all more or less of the same view. Politicians, we politicians formed the opinion that we are getting, we were more or less getting out of COVID situation. We, our views are basically coming out of the, uh, you know, kind of analysis, the kind of reports, feedback we were getting from scientists and doctors, including those living outside India, but Indians were living outside India. But evidently something went wrong. Clarissa Ward joins us now. Clarissa, trying their best doesn't help the people that are suffering now. Just give us your perspective. What do you make of what you're seeing? So, Julia, first of all, let me start out by telling you where we are. We're here. Behind me is a... ...for oxygen. You can see it goes all the way down that block. And if we... Other people actually last night, they're taking out. Yeah, as you can see there, we are struggling to uh, keep contact stable with Clarissa. We will try and get her back. But for now, we uh, thank her 
And uh, as you can see and will see, there's a report from Closer which is pretty harrowing. And you'll see that in the next hour on CNN. Now, from the appalling human tragedy of the pandemic to the economic damage being wrought to the European Union entering a double-dip recession with growth shrinking by 0.4 percent in the first quarter. Germany, among the worst hits, seeing growth fall by some 1.7 percent. Melissa Bell joins us with Paris for more. Melissa, I mentioned earlier on the show it is backward-looking, this data, but you can't help but draw a comparison between what we saw across the European Union versus what we saw in the United States and growth clearly in the United States. Europe's still struggling with outbreaks. That's right, Julia. You can only help, you can't help uh, but uh, compare and contrast. And of course, the fortunes of the EU, not just the EU, but the Eurozone, both mm. uh, seeing that official entry into recession as a result, once again, of this uh, quarter's uh, uh, contraction, Julia. Uh, the difference, I think, uh, when you look at those two economies and how differently they've performed over the first uh, quarter of 2021, really, the two big differences are, on one hand, vaccines, and on the other hand, stimulus, Julia. Those are the real two keys to understanding how differently the United States and Europe have fared. Now, it's probably no surprise. When you look around the EU at the moment, uh, we're seeing economies that are locked down. There are a lot of restrictions in place. Uh, here in Paris, restrictions haven't been lifted now for many months. Uh, many things essentially at a standstill, and that would explain a lot of that. On one hand, you've had that sluggish uh, vaccination campaign. Really, Europe's figures nowhere near where the United States uh, figures are for the time being. So those restrictions have had to stay in place while those third wave COVID-19 figures have continued to rise here on the European continent. But then also there's that question of stimulus. So remember last year when you and I talked about this, Julia, it had been such a step forward for the European Union. The 750 billion euro stimulus package for the first time, Europeans were going to be able to raise debt together. Uh, this was really a sign of new things to come for the EU and its ability for once to be able to function as a block to take on these kinds of challenges. The trouble is, Julia, that those payments that will be the fruit of that 750 million billion-dollar stimulus package really won't start coming till the summer. So you've seen the United States both have a faster vaccination campaign, a faster stimulus uh, program that has right. got money back into coffers when it needed it in time. That really the big differences between the two. And I think both of those, both the vaccination and the stimulus, the fact that Europe for the first time is trying to take on this pandemic in a coordinated, united uh, way, that, Julia, takes more time than doing it alone. Yeah, when you've got to sign off on some kind of stimulus and a response by 27 different parliaments or governments uh, across the EU, then you're going to have serious trouble trying to do it quickly. And that really has played into these numbers here, to your point about the, re the response. Melissa, what about what we're going to see in France next week? Is there's a hope that perhaps we see some of the restrictions reduced? That's right. Finally, we, we feel like we're turning a quarter on this side of the Atlantic, at least, Julia. You were quite right to point out a moment ago, of course, all these figures are backward looking. We're looking to that terrible second and third waves that have really battered Europe hard. What seems to be happening now is that the figures are improving here in France. Uh, we now know that high school students, for instance, go back to school on Monday. And from May 19th, you're going to see a return to some sense of normality. Not only will the, will the travel restrictions have been lifted from Monday largely within uh, Europe, but you're going to see businesses open again, terraces open again, cafes, restaurants museums, all of those things that are really a, an ability for people to spend. And those figures, when you look at what uh, the European Central Bank is projecting for the second half of the year, are far more encouraging. You're looking at growth, they predict, of more than 4%, more than 4% against next year, by which point they predict will be at back to pre-pandemic levels. So that's how fast things are going to go now, but really the fruit of people being able to get out there and spend once again, Julia, at long last. Yeah. 
that got your enthusiasm going there at the back end of that report. So fingers <laughs> crossed for next week. OK, uh, let's try and get back to India now and Clarissa Ward. I think we've managed to reestablish connection. Uh, Clarissa, can you hear me now? I can hear you, Julia. Sorry about Great. that technical difficulty earlier. But we're here in this long, long line. It snakes all the way around the block over there. And these people have been waiting to try to get precious oxygen. It's in such short supply. Many hospitals simply don't have it. These people, some of them tell us they've been waiting since 5 o'clock this morning. Some of them say they came here last night. People are taking shifts, taking turns to wait in this long line. And the terrible thing is, Julia, that once you get to the front of the line, and I have to tell you, the line does not move quickly, there's absolutely no guarantee even that you're going to be able to get any oxygen because the demand is so huge. Excuse me, excuse me, forgive me. And the supply is so little. The government says it's trying to address this problem. It has started a program called Operation Oxygen Express trying to deploy liquid oxygen on India's railways to the places and cities that need it the most. But here on the ground, honestly, Julia, we're not seeing or feeling the impact of those efforts yet. What you're seeing and feeling is a growing sense of anger and frustration and desperation as people wait for days on end trying to get their oxygen, trying to help their loved ones to breathe. We've talked to people in this line who are getting things for their grandparents, their parents, their children sometimes. No one in India is completely spared from this tragedy, Julia. Clarissa, when I introduced you before, I, I mentioned that a spokesperson for the BJP party had said, look, we bear responsibility. We, we were ill-prepared for this second wave. What are the people saying about the, the lack of preparedness? Are they angry, upset, furious with, with the fact that they're having yeah. to struggle and they feel alone? There's, there's definitely a lot of anger. There's a lot of anger as well because just a few months ago, Julia... This country's leadership was basically doing a victory lap, saying that essentially COVID had been defeated. They were allowing and even encouraging huge political rallies in state elections in West Bengal, other states. They were allowing cricket matches, movie theaters were open, weddings were being held. The Kumbh Mela, which is an enormous Hindu pilgrimage drawing millions of worshippers into the same space, was allowed to take place. And a lot of people here feel like that was completely irresponsible and that the steps weren't taken that needed to be taken, such as ensuring there were more hospital beds, ensuring there was enough oxygen concentrate, ensuring there's enough remdesivir, ensuring there are enough vaccines. We heard the Prime Minister Narendra Modi just yesterday saying, OK, as of tomorrow, May 1st, anyone over 18 can go and get vaccinated. But that's not true, Julia. Already several states have come forward and said, we can't promise that we can deliver on that because we don't have the necessary supplies yet. So this is a chaotic situation. And while people may appreciate that the government is owning up to its responsibility in failing to mitigate this tragedy, that doesn't really do a huge amount for the people here on the ground who are struggling to get by. It doesn't stop the suffering today, but they have to respond quicker now. Clarissa, great to have you with us. Stay safe, please. Clarissa Ward there. And as I mentioned earlier, you can see Clarissa's harrowing report from inside India's hospitals in the next hour on CNN.
Okay, let's move on. Next up, Amazonian scale growth from Amazon. The tech giant saw profits more than triple in the first quarter to over $8 billion as consumers spent online and more companies relied on its cloud services. Claire Sebastian has been poring over the numbers. Claire, I read actually that the profits that they made in the 12 months ending March 31st is more than the profits that they made in the entire three years up to 2019. I mean, we can't even get a sense of the scale of the of the earnings over the past pandemic period. Yeah, Julia, I think it's very clear that the pandemic has been extremely good for Amazon, even though it's been very expensive. They said that they spent about two billion on COVID-19 related costs in the quarter. They're still going to spend, they say, one and a half billion in the next quarter. But despite that, the profitability of this company is just extraordinary. And I want to point out one number because AWS, which is Amazon Web Services, the streaming service, still remains a key engine of profitability. It was about 12.5% of sales, but 47% of operating income. So look, they've already got the economies of scale in their e-commerce business that allows them to be profitable there. Add to that the huge profitability and relatively lower costs of AWS. And you see how this engine of Amazon is growing. And it's not just those two things. Now, they've got an advertising business that grew at some 77% year on year, along with a few other things that's in a category called other. And international also was up 60% year on year. So extraordinary numbers. And one more thing to point out, Julia, is the guidance. The company says that uh, in the next quarter, they expect net sales between 110 and 116 billion. That's up 24 to 30% year on year. Still numbers that, that are in line or even slightly higher with what we saw pre-pandemic. So that suggests that this wasn't sort of a, a one-off pull forward in demand. Some of this change will be enduring when it comes to, to the growth of this company. Yeah, it's quite fascinating, isn't it? I read this morning, Amazon, Apple, Google, Microsoft and Facebook earned $75 billion in Q1. These really are titans and we run out of adjectives, quite frankly, to describe them. (laughs) Thank you so much for that update there. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Israel is opening an investigation into possible criminal negligence by police following a deadly stampede at Mount Meron Thursday night. That, according to the nation's attorney general, dozens were killed when a crush occurred in a huge crowd at a religious festival. Journalist Elliot Gottkeen is at the hospital where they're treating patients in Tel Aviv. Elliot, great to have you with us. Just give us a sense of what the update is on those that were injured and also do we know actually what happened? Uh, Julia, uh, just to um, slightly correct you there, um, this is in fact the uh, Israel's Institute of Forensic Medicine uh, that is over the other side of those trees. That is where the bodies of the uh, people who have died have been brought. Uh, Police spokesman told us they've been arriving over the last three hours and that inside there are dozens of people trying to identify, uh, to look at the bodies, to see if among them they can find their loved ones or friends or family who may have perished uh, in this uh, crush uh, last night at that uh, religious festival. Um, There are still around about 20 people who are critically ill in hospital, so that uh, death toll of uh, 45, which is where it stands right now, could, of course, rise further. Overall, there are around about 100 people injured, but most of those uh, were suffering from broken bones, according to the health ministry. Uh, They've been patched up and sent home. Now, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu described this as one of the worst disasters to befall the state of Israel. He said that uh, seeing what had happened was 
heartbreaking. And he said that uh, Sunday, he designated Sunday as a national day of mourning. We're still trying to understand exactly what happened, but it does seem as though uh, there were just a lot of people, and then in one particular part of where this festival uh, was taking place, this gathering was taking place, that there was a bit of a bottleneck, that uh, there was a bit of a crush, and uh, people slipped and then fell on top of one another. One uh, local media outlet describing it as a human avalanche. Uh, But of course, as you say, there is an investigation ongoing, and they will try to uh, establish and clarify precisely what happened last night. Yeah, and our best wishes with those that are injured, of course, and their families. Elliot, grateful to you for joining us today, and thank you for the correction on where you are from Tel Aviv there. Thank you. All right, still to come here on First Move. Apple squeezed. The EU says the company broke the rules to create a music monopoly. And stemming climate change, we take a look at a new carbon offset market paying lumberjacks not to fell trees. Welcome back to First Move this Friday. What a week it's been for investors filled with fang festivities, stronger economic activities, even space race hostilities between Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, the world's richest men. One of them got richer this week as well. No liftoff, though, into the stratosphere for the Wall Street majors today. The S&P 500 set to pull back from records. But Jeff Bezos basking in the glow of sky high Amazon sales, more than $100 billion worth last quarter. I have to say it's been a fang frolic overall this week with four members of that exclusive tech family showing that they can thrive even as vaccines let some emerge from lockdowns. Revenues for Amazon, Facebook and Apple all up well over 40 percent this past quarter. Alphabet, the relative underperformer with sales only, and I say only, up 34 percent. The EU, however, upsetting the apple cart this Friday. EU Competitions Commissioner Margrethe Vestager announcing just hours ago that she's filing antitrust charges against the company, accusing Apple of anti-competitive behaviour within its app store. Our preliminary conclusion is that Apple abused its dominant position for the distribution of music streaming apps through its app store and distorted competition in the music streaming market. The EU acting on a complaint from Spotify, which competes with Apple Music in the streaming space, challenging Apple's 30 percent commission on in-app purchases, saying it results in higher prices for consumers and for not telling those consumers that there are other ways to pay. Dan Ives joins us now. He's managing director of equity research at Wedbush Securities. Dan, great to have you with us. What do you make of this and how concerned are you? Because it doesn't just focus on music. This is for every user of apps and the things that they buy in them. Yeah, and and they're going after the crown jewel of Apple, the App Store services. That's about a $65, $70 billion annual revenue stream. And I think this is something we're going to see more of this drum roll regulatory, not just in Brussels, but in the Beltway against big tech. Apple, of course, front and center. I think right now the street's viewing this as a contained risk, likely more fines. But I think it's just the start of this Game of Thrones battle between big tech and Brussels. You were one of those that had the best, I think, adjectives for describing Apple's quarter, if we stick with that. You called it Picasso-like. They're the Tom Brady of the tech world. Just talk us through the earnings. And as you said, this is something perhaps that investors can compartmentalize, even if they know the battles with Brussels are just beginning. I think that's what you're seeing across big tech. I mean, Mm. Apple's numbers 
in all my years covering, I put it probably as one of the best quarters I've ever seen. A 17% iPhone beat, services beat by 600 bips. And, and what you're starting to see now is Apple, they're getting stronger in terms of monetization as part of the super cycle. Now, the stocks are flattest to trading down because investors are skeptical that it's sustainable, just like we saw from Amazon last night. But I believe we're just in the middle innings of a re-rating in tech. We still think NASDAQ 16,000 uh, by the end of this year. I mean, the skeptics are going to say, look, this kind of growth... Some of it was tied to the pandemic, to our greater usage of technology, to uh, greater cloud use in certain of these tech cases. Specifically for Apple, the criticisms have been there on valuation since they were worth one trillion in terms of market cap. Now we're talking two trillion market cap. I'm sure they'll be there if they get to three trillion. Dan, what's your view? Is it still a buying opportunity for Apple? And and, and that's my view. I mean, the haters are going to hate it at one trillion, scream as it goes to two trillion. And at three trillion, just pulling their hair out. But at the end of the day, if you look at what's happening in terms of the monetization in Cupertino, the super cycle going into services, I believe more and more this is a stock that's being used as software, services, hardware play. And that's a re-rating higher and numbers moving higher. I still think a year from now, it's a $3 trillion market. In just a year. That, my, my view, a year from now, we're looking at stocks that's somewhere between 185 to 200 hours. Talk to me about Amazon. I mean, look, it's the same theme. I mean, Amazon, yeah. not just on e-commerce, but if you look at cloud, I mean, that's really what was almost a jaw dropper because there was some skepticism, Microsoft gaining more and more share versus Amazon. But I think it just shows this digital transformation, $2 trillion that's going to be spent over the next decade, Amazon and cloud monetizing and the e-commerce and advertising, that continues to go forward, guiding strong Stock will be up a bit today, but I think this is more of a digestion period. I think we look out the coming weeks and months, these FANG names are much higher, despite what's been a frustrating week for investors after these numbers. Yeah, it was quite fascinating as well to mention advertising where uh, Amazon is concerned. But when you look at the numbers from the likes of Alphabet with the performance for Google, with Facebook and the monster earnings that they provided, the more people turn to the Internet to buy things, to work from home, the more eyeballs follow, therefore the advertisers follow. And this is another potential diversification opportunity for Apple. And it's nothing right now as far as their business is concerned relative to, to the cloud and for the e-commerce business. Surely there's potential yeah, for them to snatch market share there too, please. It's a tidal wave of spending that's going to yeah. happen on the digital. So now you're seeing that when Google, where they're really front and center. So that was just a massive talent. But Amazon is not going to be on the outside looking in in terms of this party, just given the amount of money that's going to be spent as well as their ecosystem and prime membership. And I think you're going to see more of an arms race on digital advertising. And this is something Amazon, they're not just going to stay in their swim lane. They're going to continue to expand. This is one area I expect them to go after. Tesla, very quickly, Dan, there were some questions about the profitability that we saw and the origin of those profits, whether it's tax credits or Bitcoin. Is, is Bitcoin a distraction? What do you Look, think Look, I right mean, now? Bitcoin... Look, to this point, Bitcoin, they've made more than a billion in terms of from a paper profit. Of course, it adds noise to the story. But this all comes down to deliveries and the EV, you know, the green tidal wave that we're seeing. China continues to be strong. The trajectory going forward is bullish for Tesla. And this is another one. 
Chip shortage aside, I mean, they could be in 900,000 units this year. And if they get there, then this is a four-digit stock. Okay. Bullish as ever, Dan Ives, the Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. Always great to chat to you, Dan. Thank you. Okay, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on the last trading day of April and no Mayday signal for stocks. We are weaker in early trading after another record-setting close for the S&P 500. Investors hitting pause, even as new reports show continued economic strengthening in the United States. Personal spending rising 4.2 percent in March, a hotter than expected read on prices too. the closely watched PCE core inflation index rising by half a percent last month and well over 2% year over year. Remember, that's a data point that the Fed watches very, very closely. Encouraging economic data in Asia too, with Taiwan reporting its fastest rate of growth since 2010, helped along by demand for precious computer drips that drove up prices there. Now returning to India and our top story, where more than 208,000 lives have been lost from COVID-19 as hospitals and other healthcare facilities are stretched beyond breaking point. The Oyo Hotel Group is lending its support. And Ritesh Agarwal is the founder and CEO of Oyo Hotels, and he joins us now. Ritesh, great to have you with us, and uh, thank you for uh, sharing your time. Before I ask you what you and the team are doing, I just want to ask how you're doing. How are you all uh, handling this? Hey, thank you so much, Julia, for uh, speaking to me now the second time after uh, the pandemic struck. I remember meeting you right before the pandemic struck. Uh, thanks for asking. I'm doing OK. Uh, my uh, my family is doing OK. Unfortunately, both my sisters and their families are affected, but uh, they're recovering quite quickly. OK, well, that's good to hear. And um, we keep our fingers crossed for, uh, for full recovery here. Just explain what Oyo Hotels is doing to try and support, because as you quite rightly said, we spoke when you launched Oyo Care and you were providing hotel rooms to government, local government workers, uh, workers of, of corporations as well. Explain what you're doing this time around and how it differs. Look, I think it's a little bit of, uh, first off, I think it's important to acknowledge and understand that we are dealing with a significant second wave here in India in which the cases and um, you know healthcare situation continues to uh, remain quite challenging. It's a combination of two things that we're doing, Julia. I think the first perspective is a little bit of the same. That is, uh, if you remember last time, even the White House acknowledged it that we had progressed in bringing free room nights for the frontline workers and so on. That we are of course restarted again, bringing uh, rooms for frontline workers. But a few new things that we have brought in are as under. The first bit is at this point of time, what we've seen is a lot of people require just a place to be able to, or a shelter to be able to recover, for which we have set up isolation centers. We are launching a campaign today with Give India, which is uh, a prominent uh, 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 you know, organization here, in which people who are underprivileged, and when they require basic oxygen, healthcare requirements, et cetera, at that point of time, the one thing that we can solve for them is give them a shelter or a roof over their head when they recover from COVID. So we are launching a program to enable underprivileged people to stay for free uh, at our places at the time in which they are recovering. And the third is, uh, you know, one of the most important things that's missing or that we want to provide to people is oxygen. 
so we are uh, planning and working on importing as much oxygen concentrators as possible uh, for uh, people and communities around ourselves so this just gives you a context of the kind of efforts on isolation place to recover and as much uh, oxygen concentrators as we can i mean this is this is fantastic and i can see you're doing whatever you can to help just give us a sense when you're talking about and you mentioned people who are underprivileged and you're providing these isolation services for free how many people are we talking about how many people can you cater for and and how many people are you already helping so we're starting today and we're starting small frankly we're starting with only three buildings at this point of time close to 100 uh, rooms a night but we have substantial capacity here in india uh, you know as you know last time when we spoke we had close to 300000 rooms in india so given that scale we can try and support a large volume of people uh, but frankly we have to do it with substantial amount of uh, care as well because these are people who are affected and hence they need dedicated facilities a little bit of healthcare support so we're trying to bring in healthcare providers to come in and support these facilities as much possible so that just gives you the context of some of the challenges that we have to solve for but we can uh, scale this up substantially but my hope and belief is that we should not require uh, this for um, you know a, a very large volume of people for a very long time that's that's what i'm hoping and praying for yeah and we pray with you on that point uh, you mentioned it too it's not so simple as just providing rooms for people to stay it's also the support staff around what are you doing to protect those people to make sure that they don't get sick too yeah i think that's an i'm glad that you're bringing this up julia i think at this point of time our big focus is making sure that the people who are supporting them uh, have to be one of the two the first is we are typically trying to bring in frontline workers who have worked for or who work for some of the healthcare companies most of the healthcare companies employees have already been vaccinated in india because the first uh, people who were uh, welcomed for vaccination were actually the healthcare workers uh, and on top of that uh, in our hotels we are working to launch a vaccinated tag because as you are aware from may 1st every adult in india is eligible for vaccination our hope will be to make sure that we can enable a lot of our uh, staffing also to be vaccinated even in the non um, you know uh, centers uh, for for people in covid people who are traveling in general to just make sure that they can see which hotels have the staff uh, vaccinated in order to bring trust and confidence uh, for people to come in and stay in those places i mean two things this obviously costs your business money how are you financing this retention if you can scale this up and scale it up quickly and i know people can book on the app because i've looked but surely working with local governments is the answer here as well not only to spread the word but to to get back up here and able to scale this are you talking to the government too yeah look i think we are working with the governments but at the same time i must really thank the communities around ourselves so for instance give india which is a leading program uh, you may have seen um, yesterday one of um, you know uh, india's very well prominent faces in the us priyanka chopra she started a campaign as well with give india they have started a campaign with us to try and uh, you know get communities to support this initiative to get a lot of uh, underprivileged uh, people free accommodations um and the second is we are of course actively working with governments as well um and you know frankly we are trying to also encourage our uh, own community of hotel owners to try and support in whatever manner they can and the healthcare providers 
So it's a little bit of everything. It's a, you know, at this point of time, um, you know, uh, our focus is to try and just make sure that we do everything possible uh, with, with the resources we have to ensure that, uh, you know, we can, we can help the people to whom uh, the, they're not immune of the pandemic, right? The people who are underprivileged, who have limited resources, uh, they in fact have bigger challenges with this. Huge challenges. I mean, Ritesh, we've been showing our viewers crematoriums that are working day and night. People angry, frightened, crying on the streets. I mean, it's it's heart wrenching for anybody watching this. No matter you people in India that are having to suffer it personally. Uh, are you angry with the government, Ritesh, that there weren't enough warnings that this could happen, that people were voting, going to elections, going to religious ceremonies rather than being prepared for something so tragic to happen? So look, at this point of time, I must say that I, our company, our communities, our ecosystem, our towns, everybody's only focus is to fight and win this battle against the second wave of COVID. Frankly, there has been no time to reflect on, uh, you know, what could have been done better. But clearly, everyone, right from uh, the communities, our people, uh, the the entire, uh, you know, country could have been better prepared. But I think at this point of time, uh, you know, I can tell you that everybody is doing the best they can uh, across the ecosystem. And, uh, you know, at this point of time, frankly, we wake up every day and the intent is to try and make sure that what can we do to uh, help our communities? That's the only thing that we are focused upon at this point of time. Yeah, the fight to save lives. That's the bottom line and the most important thing at this moment. And vaccination is the single biggest focus in that, Julia. I think we're seeing this in markets around the world, you know, I mean, uh, it's it's amazing to me. I speak to our friends in the U.S. Our rev parts in the U.S. are more than two times of what it was last year, same time. So the domestic travel is booming in the U.S. The lodging revenue has been probably the highest I have seen, at least in my um, uh, history. And on the other hand, I see here in India that, um, you know, uh, uh, we, we are facing the challenges we are. I think the only thing that we got to work on is vaccination. If we can vaccinate a large part of our population, which we have had a history of doing, I think uh, we, will, we will save lives and, and make sure that our country gets back, um, you know, running again. Yeah, like we said, we pray for that and we pray for all of you that are suffering at this moment. And of course, your sisters and their families, too. Ritesh, thank you so much for that. We'll speak again soon. Stay safe, please. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Lumber prices in the United States are sky high, having tripled over the past year. Some might say that's a lucrative opportunity perhaps for landowners, but one company wants to pay them not to fell trees. Sylvia Terra's carbon offset marketplace allows companies to pay timber owners to keep forests and ecosystems intact, and thereby helping offset the company's carbon footprint. It's a clever scheme. Joining us now is Zach Parisi. He's co-founder and CEO of Sylvia Terra. Zach, great to have you on the show. I love this concept, but we have a lot to discuss. And I want to begin with the technology, the artificial intelligence and what you do just to work out what trees, what the ecosystem looks like in parts of America. And that's the sort of basis of how this works. Explain. That's exactly right, Julian. Great to be with you here. Um, so just like you say, so we're, we're taking a uh, massive amount of satellite imagery, imagery of you know, forests all over the United States, pairing that with ground measurements and producing a basically map or an inventory of every tree in the U.S. by species and, and size. 
And it's that kind of measurement, those kind of, of, uh, of data and information that allow us to create this market that, that we're talking about today, a market that uh, connects landowners, forest landowners throughout the United States with you know, net zero pioneers like, like Microsoft, Salesforce, and others, uh, helping them offset their, their carbon emissions by paying landowners to not cut, to grow more carbon on the landscape. Uh, and so it's an exciting opportunity for landowners and, and something we've seen uh, an awful lot of interest in. And yeah, glad to be talking with you about it. I mean, I mentioned the lumber price of uh, the lumber price is rocketing for a reason, because when I was reading about what your company does, I was thinking, hang on a second. Does this mean that some of the landowners would be like, look, I, I think this is a great idea, but actually I want to utilize higher prices and the opportunity cost of not felling these trees now is higher. And that, again, is what's quite unique, I think, about what you're doing is the concept of auctioning. Tell us about how the landowners say, look, this is what it's worth to me to keep these trees in the position they're in right now and protect the ecosystem versus selling. Right. Yeah. So one of the surprising things when we look at the rise in lumber prices is that that has not translated mm. to an increase in price of, of timber or logs that, that landowners are sending to, to the mill. And so for them, really the only opportunity that they have to um, you know, to receive financial gain from their property is to to harvest those logs, is to or or to sell the land itself, and so there is a cost to extending the rotation uh, for for these landowners, and what we're making possible is uh, is basically for each of these landowners by simply clicking on their property, we indicate what the likely harvest volume is from their property and allow them to state the price at which they would be willing to defer harvest, to wait just one more year and to grow their timber a little bit longer, you know, sponging out a little bit more carbon from the atmosphere. And by running that reverse auction, we can identify the lowest cost carbon on the landscape and provide additional financial incentives for, for growing these trees, growing these forests. And you've already done this. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, we had run a pilot with with Microsoft in Pennsylvania that wrapped up last year, and then uh, starting in January, we opened this market up to 11 states in the U.S. South. And in just about eight weeks of having that market open, uh, prior to closing our first uh, sort of this first cycle, uh, we were blown away by the interest. We had uh, over nine and a half million acres of of folks enroll, uh, or yeah, of, of land enrolled from the largest. Uh, institutional forest landowners in the U.S. all the way down to landowners, uh, just families that have 30 or 40 acres. Uh, so nine and a half million acres is, is roughly the size of, of the state of Maryland. So uh, pretty substantial. I mean, you're going to make this available throughout the United States, I, I believe, as well. It's a, it's a great example, I think, of the private sector saying, look, we can do something here to help achieve lower carbon emissions or at least help companies offset their carbon emissions and improve their footprint. I just wonder what role the government plays here or whether there is a role for the government, even if it just helps you scale this, because we clearly in the United States have a very climate conscious government right. for the first time in a while. Right. So, you know, these leading companies, you know, Microsoft and, and others have really driven innovation in, in this field. And, and that's one of the great things about sort of these, you know, these market based uh, opportunities, market-based mechanisms that uh, that allow for carbon removal, but the government does have a role to play, uh, particularly perhaps in uh, in helping scale these right. these types of initiatives. And uh, there's actually right now some bipartisan legislation that's moving through uh, moving through DC that that you know 
plans to do exactly that. So we're uh, we're excited to see how that comes together and uh, how that can help uh, enhance the the growth of these of these market based mechanisms. Land rights matter. The desire to protect ecosystems matter. The desire of companies to take part clearly matters as well. Do you think this works in other geographies around the world? Is that part of the ambition here? I mean, admittedly, you have a big project with the United States, but can you scale this beyond the U.S.? Absolutely. So just like you said earlier, our, you know, right now this is available to, to landowners in, you know, for every forest type in the U.S. South, for landowners in the Lake States, New York and, and Pennsylvania. And by the end of this calendar year, it'll be available to every single forest landowner in the United States. The, the same mechanism that we're using uh, in the U.S., this, you know, measuring, uh, you know, measuring the potential impact for deferring harvests, and paying landowners for their performance year over year can work elsewhere. But uh, and while we plan to expand globally, there's so much nuance to the ecology uh, and and to especially uh, to the sort of social structure in each of these places that has to be attended to. So it's not as simple as copy and paste, but certainly taking the same market-based mechanisms and making those available to landowners really to empower them to make decisions that work for them at at prices or at, with compensation that works for them to achieve these benefits that that we all need. Not only just carbon, you know, we're, while we're talking about geographic expansion, we call this the natural capital exchange because, uh, and, and not the forest carbon exchange, because really this is meant to work for all of the benefits that we know right. forests provide beyond just timber. You know, forest carbon obviously, but also wildlife uh, habitat, water yield, fire risk reduction, all of these things uh, can be brought into better balance using market-based mechanisms that that pay landowners to uh, to manage in such a way, uh, either you know increasing uh, density of forests or in some cases decreasing density of forests, to to achieve that that balance. Uh, so yeah, we're really excited again not only to expand <laughs> uh, to to just all these geographies. Just the beginning. But, yeah, just the beginning. Just the beginning. <laughs> but it's but it's exciting. Are, are you looking uh, for money? And, very very quickly. Are you looking for money? Do you no. need more investment? Uh, so. <laughs> So uh, we'll have some news to share here here in a uh-huh. bit. Uh, we close to seed round in yeah close to seed round in November, but we're just uh, between interest with you know these uh, these net zero pioneers uh, you know these companies you know uh, Fortune 1000 uh, companies that are that are making and making good on these commitments and and these landowners that are that are so interested in participating. Uh, really, what you know what we need is just engagement. So it's going to take all of us you know landowners, companies, uh, government, uh, NGOs, academic community, and so. Uh, you know, there's so much technology and, and thought and good work that needs to, to be brought to bear to bend the arc on, on climate change. Yeah. Trees are just part of that. Uh, and so, yeah, we're excited. Now to, we just uh, need action. I have to wrap you up because I'm out right. of time, Zach. Oh, of course. <laughs> action. Great to chat to you, Zach Parisa, co-founder CEO yeah, of Sylvia Terra. Thank you. Great work. We're back up for this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. While much of the world paused amid the COVID-19 pandemic, one firm kept moving on its plans to utilise the skies to get us around. As Bianca Nabilo discovers in the latest part of CNN's Road to the Future. Hey, Doc, we better back up. We don't have enough road to get up to 88. Roads? Well, we're going, we don't need roads. In 1985... Back to the Future envisaged a world with flying cars zooming around the sky. Well, it's 2021, and I still don't see them. But it's far from the world of just science fiction now. The concept of urban air mobility is edging closer to becoming a reality. The Brazilian playmaker Embraer 
is one of those leading the way. Forget flying cars, meet the eVTOL. It's the catchy name for an electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. This one is a concept being developed by EVE, a spin-off of Embraer X, the innovation arm of the Brazilian aerospace conglomerate. Everyone has been stuck in traffic jams at certain point of their lives. So could you bring everything that aerospace and aviation brought to transportation in general, literally closer to the people and into the city, developing a vehicle that could fly within the city with no addition to the city noise or emissions, finding solutions that could make air mobility a viable opportunity. Flying cars have become something that everyone talks about when they think about the future of transport, but they don't materialize. It just doesn't happen. So how far are we from making EV tolls part of the mainstream? It's exactly that type of technology that can disrupt aviation. It will be some years before you can have a commercial jet that's fully electric, that you can really fly a hundred people thousands of kilometers away, but the technology is ready for to fly just a few. And just to make it clear, we are not seeing a total replacement of cars or, or the world of Blade Runner, Blade Runner or Jetsons. It's about providing another option. Do you think that urban air mobility or advanced air mobility is going to become a reality in our lifetime? Absolutely, yes, I think it will become a reality during this decade. Okay, that just about wraps up the show. Stay safe this weekend and we'll see you next week. Connect the World is next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.